Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. We have to talk about everything that's going on with Jesse Smollett. I will interchange Smollett and Smollett. I just, I cannot help it. <laughs> just, it happens as I talk about this case. But I'm really fascinated about what's going to happen in the appellate court. I will give a quick rundown of what happened. Then we're going to do a timeline. And then we're going to talk about the law here. And at the end, we're going to talk about why this case is similar but distinguishable from what happened on appeal with Bill Cosby. I think, and you might not see this a lot around the internet, I think there's a very real possibility that Jesse Smollett goes back into jail to serve out his five months and these convictions stand. And my mind has been changed on this based on the hundreds of pages I have read in this case. I went back to when this decision was decided before at the trial court level, before it went up on appeal to look at what happened back then. And it gave me a lot of new information that I have not seen shared anywhere. So if you're ready for a deep dive behind the headlines with what's going on with Jesse Smollett and why I think there's a very real possibility he loses on appeal, then stay tuned because we are going to talk about it. You're going to learn more about Double Jeopardy than you ever wanted to know. And no, I'm not talking about the TV show. So let's just get into it. Let's just get into it. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Did you know that there is a members-only podcast called I Have Thoughts that's available over in our Law Nerd community? There is. Not only do you have access to the I Have Thoughts podcast, but you also have access to behind-the-scenes recording of episodes like this and our members-only live streams and exclusive merch. And there is some exclusives coming up for the members only that I can't even share yet, but you are not going to want to miss what we do for our 200K celebration. That's right. We hit 200,000 subscribers on YouTube, and I will be celebrating that with something special for the law nerds that I think will probably sell out because they are limited in number and they are going to be available to our members first. So if you have not joined our Law Nerd community and have been thinking about it, we are over on Patreon and you can easily get there at lawnerdsunite.com. That's lawnerdsunite.com. Come chat with me inside our community, talk about podcast episodes, get the behind the scenes, and depending on what you want to do, you can vote on the topics that I cover and help give input on where the content goes. I hope to see you in there. And if you want to drop me a note and let you know that the podcast sent you, I will be sure to be able to get back and say, hello, thank you for coming. I can't wait. So I will see you over at lawnerdsunite.com. We haven't started every episode with a quote, but for this episode, we need to keep the words of Jesse Smollett himself in mind. And this was a statement that he gave to Robin Roberts during his GMA interview. Quote, you do such a disservice when you lie about things like this. I think we need to just take that into the entire breakdown for this episode. 
So the brief rundown of where we're at before we get into the deep dive is that on December 9th, 2021, actor, former actor, Empire actor Jesse Smollett was convicted of hoaxing a hate crime against himself. And in the course of that hoax, making multiple false reports to police on March 11th, 2022, he was sentenced. And the judge had a lot to say. If you did not watch the sentencing, I watched the entire thing. I literally had an earbud in in the car while I was heading to the book fair. I also had an earbud in while I was at the book fair, but Griffin was running around picking books. And it worked out. The judge had so much to say. But at sentencing, the defense also brought the motions that we're seeing now be brought on appeal that we will talk about a little bit later on in this episode. The judge said to Smollett things like, you're just a charlatan pretending to be a victim of a hate crime, and that's shameful. The judge further stated that Smollett has done real damage to victims of hate crimes and that he lied and kept lying and then sentenced him to 150 days in jail, 30 months of felony probation, a fine of $25,000 and restitution of a little bit over $130,000 with credit given for the $10,000 of a bail bond that Jesse had already forfeited. That bail bond becomes a central figure in all of the conversations about this appeal. On March 16th, um, oh, I I should mention that Smollett was remanded immediately into custody out of court, um, made some statements in court about not being someone who was going to commit self-harm, letting everyone know that if he was harmed in custody, he did not do that, um, and saying that maintaining his belief that he is innocent but saying that he respected the court and he respected the jury. Well, the jury didn't think he was super innocent. And the court said that the evidence in this case was beyond overwhelming. On the 16th, the appellate court granted Smollett's request to have his sentence stayed pending appeal, meaning that his incarceration sentence, the five months or so in jail, is going to be paused while the appeal is going on. And we will talk about that appellate ruling because what happens next hinges on that appellate ruling. To really dive into why this appeal matters and why my opinion has been changed, I still think these are grounds for appeal. He's appealing on grounds of double jeopardy. I think he has good grounds to appeal. I just don't think he is going to win. Based on everything I've read about the previous arguments the defense has made in this case on this issue. But to really get the full breadth of this case, I found a timeline really helpful in a lot of the cases where I've done timeline breakdowns. I know you've found them really helpful. So if a timeline helps you out so you can see how this all progressed, let me know, because we are going to break it down right now, starting in 2019. On January 29th, 2019, The alleged incident occurred a little after two o'clock in the morning in the middle of Chicago's like coldest polar vortex of whenever, whatever, like 40 degrees below. Smollett needed to go out and get a salad or a sandwich or some shit at, at Walgreens or at Subway or wherever. We see the news starting to break that day with headlines like, you know, police say Empire star victim of apparent hate crime, things like that. On January 31st, Smollett refuses to turn over his phone to police, which I think was one of the first red flags in watching this story break. I remember seeing the story and seeing the 
breakdown of what had happened in this now known to be hoax hate crime with the bleach and the noose. And it's, it was viscerally horrifying. You're like, what in the world is happening in our country that we're here, that people think that this is okay, that people would do this? I remember having a very visceral response to seeing the reports. Um, and those are my initial thoughts before it was like, oh, well, now there's some strangeness to it. Uh, and that came way later for me. I didn't follow this story super closely in 2019. So I'd be so curious about what your initial response was, not hindsight's 2020, but when you first heard this, if you remember what your visceral response was, I would love to hear that uh, in the comments or on social media. On February 1st, Smolay speaks out for the first time on social media saying, let me start by saying I'm okay. My body is strong, but my soul is stronger. More importantly, I want to say thank you. And then he says he is 100% factual and consistent on every level and that he is working with authorities. On February 11th, Smollett gives the police a PDF file of phone records, but the police call what was turned over heavily redacted. Also a problem when you are the victim, not turning over everything to make it easier for the police to find the people who did this to you. The phone was a central um, point in this because he had been on the phone when this went down or said he was on the phone. I think he actually was on the phone when he went down, when this went down. I think that was part of the staging was somebody else hearing it, having a witness to witness what you've been through. In addition to it being under a camera that later was discovered to not be working. On February 14th, the Osendario brothers are arrested as suspects and interviewed and not charged. A search of their home produces an empire script, um, phone, receipts, a red hat, and bleach. On February 14th, Jesse also goes on GMA. If you have not watched the GMA interview, I will attach a link um, in the show notes and on the YouTube description. You can go watch it for yourself. The interview is oddly emotionless on Jesse's part for me. And I've sat down with a lot of people who have been through crimes, um, who have been stabbed or shot or had loved ones killed or been defrauded. When they retell what happened, there is emotion, whether it is anger, embarrassment, rage, sorrow, fear. There's some kind of emotion. There's no emotion from him until when he talks about potentially these people getting away. And even then it feels forced to me. So I'd love to know your thoughts on this interview. There are multiple behavioral analysis channels on YouTube that have broken it down. But just sitting from the perspective of someone who sat down with uh, victims of crime, either shortly thereafter or years after, you feel it when they share their story with you. And you can even feel it when they're holding back because they don't want to tell you everything. You feel nothing from Smollett in this GMA interview. But he does say that he's forever changed. I 100% believe that that's true, especially now. And he does say, you know, you do a disservice when you lie about things like this, which is what we open the show with. He also recounts how everything happened and he addresses refusing to turn over his phone because he's got important shit in his phone, y'all. There's phone numbers in there and there's photos in there. You know, the stuff we all have in our phones. On February 20th, 2019, Jesse is charged by Chicago police with disorderly conduct and filing false police reports. He is arrested on February 21st 
At a press conference, the police superintendent, Eddie Johnson, says that Smollett took advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career and states that he did it because he was, quote, dissatisfied with his salary, end quote. On February 22nd, he is, Jesse is suspended from Empire. On March 7th, Jesse is indicted on 16 counts. So the police charge him with the arresting charge, and then he is indicted by a grand jury on 16 counts. Please keep in mind that those 16 counts all stem from the January 29 incident from the police reports made that day because it becomes very relevant later. Emily, will you say it again? Oh, probably. Probably. We probably will. On March 14th, Smollett pleads not guilty on all of the counts in the indictment. And then on March 26th, all of the charges are dropped. Things happened in that intervening time. Um, there were conversations between, you know, Michelle Obama's former like chief of staff and the the prosecutor, and she's the state's attorney in is what they call it in Chicago, but essentially the DA of Chicago, the state's attorney, Kim Fox, had publicly said that she was going to recuse herself, but that doesn't really work in a prosecutor's office because you either recuse your office or you don't. She just handed it over to another individual in her office. She is under investigation for the handling of this case. The special prosecutor did look into her handling of this case. And as we get to that point in time, we will talk about it, but we are going in a chronological time. So don't. I'm not skipping over what the DA did in this case. We're just trying to go chronologically. So March 26th, all charges are dropped. The state's attorney's office moved uh, no pros, which is essentially um, not proceeding, abandonment of the charges, non-prosecution. So they moved no pros um, for all of the counts. The judge granted that that motion to dismiss the counts no pros. It matters the way that this was dismissed. And Jesse forfeited the $10,000 bail bond that he was out on. So the cash bond that he had put up was then forfeited over to the city of Chicago. We, I, we, me, I went through the entire transcript of that hearing and it is shockingly brief. I'm going to tell you what happened at that hearing real quick right now. So for those of you on the YouTube version, you will get to see this. For those of you on audio, if you want to see the actual transcript, it's over on YouTube. Um, and it starts with the fact that they advance the case from April 2nd to March 26th. And then the state's attorney says, Judge, on today's date, the state does have a motion in this case. After reviewing the facts and circumstances of the case, including Mr. Smollett's uh, volunteer service in the community and agreement to forfeit his bond to the city of Chicago. Remember, agreement is what they said. Yes, this plays in later. Agreement to forfeit his bond to the city of Chicago. The state's motion in regards to the indictment is to Noel Pross. We believe this outcome is a just disposition and appropriate resolution of the case. I do have an order directing the clerk of the circuit court to release the bond number, and then they give the bond number payable to the city of Chicago to be sent directly to the city of Chicago Department of Law. And there's an address and the person there who takes care of that on behalf of the city. The court says, thank you. The court then asks for the defense. The defense attorney, Ms. Brown Holmes, says, judge, 
we would absolutely agree. We would also ask that the court immediately seal the records. The court says, do you have an order prepared for that? The defense says, yes, we do judge. The court says motion state, no pros granted motion state to release the bond to the city of Chicago will be granted motion defendant for immediate sealing of the criminal records will be granted. Um, the defense says, thank you very much, judge. The court says, sure. Anything else? The state's attorney says, no, that's it. The court says, all right, good luck, Mr. Smollett. The defendant Smollett says, thank you very much. The court says, you're welcome. The defense attorney says, we appreciate it. The court says, you're welcome. And that is it. That is the entirety of the March 26th hearing, wherein these charges were dismissed. This hearing is going to be the heart of a lot of the conversation around the double jeopardy appeal that we will get to. But that is how fast that went. No plea, an agreement to turn over or forfeit the bond, and that's it. On March 29th, just three days later, the city of Chicago sends a demand notice to Jesse demanding him pay over 120000 or pardon, over $130,000 for the overtime of the officers who investigated this case. At sentencing, we now know that he was ordered to pay over $120,000, um, the $10,000 already retained by the city on March 26th. On April 5th, you get an individual who happens to be an attorney and retired judge in their individual capacity, petitioning the court to appoint a special prosecutor to look into WTF even happened with this case getting dismissed just, you know, like days after the indictment comes down. On April 12th, Jesse is sued by the city of Chicago, presumably after ignoring the demand for, you know, $130,000. That lawsuit, by the way, is still ongoing. On April 23rd, the Osendario brothers file a defamation lawsuit against Mark Garagos and the Garagos and Garagos law firm. That lawsuit is still ongoing. Asterix, asterix. The Garagos firm has now sued the Osendario brothers just last week over their suit. They're, they have been sued for suing him. Um, if you would like me to break down that or those lawsuits, the defamation suit against the lawyers, and it's not a countersuit because it's not filed in the same case, but the suit in relation to, um, I'm happy to do that. Just let me know that you're interested in that. Garagos himself has been released from that suit. One of the lawyers from his firm is still pending a few of the defamation claims. Most of the claims have been dismissed. On April 30th, it's made clear that um, the Fox network has no plans for Smollett to return to empire. And that's clear on social media on June 21st, the motion for a special prosecutor is granted on June 24th. The officer body cam footage inside Jesse's apartment with the noose around his neck is publicly released. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that where he's like, I just, they're like, don't you want to take this off? And he's like, I wanted you to see it on July 19th. Smollett's attorneys filed the following motions, a substitution for cause of the judge in the case, a motion to intervene, a motion to reconsider the order granting a special prosecutor, and a motion to disclose transcripts of the grand jury. The motion for reconsidering the order um, appointing a special prosecutor is also one of the basis for appeal here. So they have been fighting on those grounds since July 2019. 
On August 23rd, Dan Webb is appointed as the special prosecutor. And then on February 11th, 2020, Jesse is indicted on six counts. Those six counts are stemming from events that happened on February 14th. 2019, when Jesse gave interviews to police, not from the January date where he gave interviews to police, which plays into my analysis down the road. On February 24th, Smollett files an appeal against Judge Tuman's rulings and the appointment of a special prosecutor. So now he's filed it in state court, the motions, and has now filed an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court in Illinois, like an emergency Can you please jump in here and stop this from happening? The argument there is that there was no authority to appoint a special prosecutor, and the special prosecutor is what's challenged, not the double jeopardy aspect. However, the double jeopardy argument is made in state court on that same day. So on February 24th, 2020, Smollett's legal team files motions in the Supreme Court of Illinois for an emergency order. And then Illinois, I know I will interchange it. I apologize for saying things horribly. So in the Supreme Court and then in state court, they file a motion to dismiss and raise the double jeopardy argument for the first time. On March 6th, the Supreme Court denies the emergency motion to stay proceedings unceremoniously. The the denial is literally, today the following order was entered in the captioned case. Emergency motion by movement for a supervisory order is denied. Order entered by the clerk. That's it. That's, That's all. Whole ruling. Then we get to June 12th, 2020. And the motion to dismiss was denied. That is the first time that the argument with regard to double jeopardy is denied. And I will break down as we talk about double jeopardy, this argument, um, once we finish up with the timeline, but this is the first time the argument's denied. On November 29th, 2021, trial begins. And then we know on December 9th, 2021, Smollett's convicted on five of the six counts. On March 11th, he 2022, he is sentenced. And then on March 16th, 2022, he's released pending appeal. Let's take a look at what the appellate court said when they released Jesse from custody and the grounds that that appeal was made on. Jesse's team filed this appeal in the first district of Illinois on March 11th, 2022 at 2.16 p.m. per the stamp It is pulled up if you are audio only and would like to see it. It is pulled up in the YouTube video and you can take a look at this appeal. This is their emergency motion to stay the sentence and or to grant bail pending appeal. Either way, they are asking that Jussie be out of custody while this appeal is pending. They base this on the facts of the case. They cite the rule that allows them to ask for this. And then they bring up the double jeopardy argument. They say that as part of the agreement in the 2019 case, Smollett was ordered to complete community service and forfeit his $10,000 bail bond to the city of Chicago. They also say that in March 2019, the defendant reached an agreement for pre-trial diversion with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in the above-mentioned 2019 case. Now, I read you the transcript of what happened that day in court. Did any of y'all heard the words pre-trial diversion? Because I sure didn't. That is not 
what was said on the record. And that is going to matter substantially in this double jeopardy argument that we are going to break down after we finish why he was released from custody, because that is the important part. But these two uh, facts are the most important part of what's coming in his appeal. This is just the emergency stay. This is just the, hey, let him out of custody because this appeal is going to take longer than he would even serve. He's in for 150 days. He's going to get day for day credit. He's going to serve half of that. There's no way this appeal will be resolved. Appeals can take years. So let him stay out of custody until this appeal is resolved. If he wins his appeal, then his prosecution could be vacated. If he loses his appeal, he can go into custody at that point in time. They then go on to talk about the fact that Smollett has filed multiple motions to dismiss between 2019 and 2021 based on breach of contractual obligation, a violation of his double jeopardy rights, and attached as Group Exhibit 2 are the sentencing memorandum and sentencing documents, including the original conviction, which were filed with the trial court, as well as the additional motions, including pretrial motions, challenging the appointment of special prosecutor, which is going to come up again. They have continuously challenged this, but they have brought motions for double jeopardy, motions based on breach of contract, and motions to dismiss the special prosecutor. I think the double jeopardy argument is not only the most interesting, but also has the most legs for them, um, even though all of these motions have previously been denied. They then talk about the fact that Smollett has become the target of various threats in the social media forms which so in like the royal social media forms, like which forms, like the broader people saying mean shit on Twitter, like what do you mean by the social media forms? And they say that it no doubt reflects the hatred and wish for physical harm towards him that he may experience during incarceration. I don't know if anonymous people on Twitter reflects how people in custody would feel, but all right, go off. They also then say that. Uh, it's no doubt that Smollett would actually be in solitary or protective custody, and that would have an extraordinarily damaging effect on his mental health. And then they make their most salient point, I think. Don't lead with this one, y'all. This is the most important one. People being rude on the Twitter is not your best argument. This is the best argument. They say specifically, if the stay is not granted, Smollett will likely serve the imposed sentence of 150 days in the custody of Cook County Jail prior to the completion of the appeal, thus creating irreparable harm and the issue of incarceration becomes moot to the detriment of Mr. Smollett. Yes, that is the best argument here. He is going to get out faster than this will be resolved. That is the salient point for the appeals court. The other points, though they matter to Smollett, um, the fact that people have said shit on social media that aren't direct threats of harm aren't going to sway the appellate court here. So they are again asking for him to be released pending appeal. And let's take a look at what the appellate court did. This is the appellate decision and order that came down on March 16th that said, finding that the defendant has been convicted on nonviolent offenses and that this court will be unable to dispose of the instant appeal before the defendant would have served his entire sentence of incarceration 
It is hereby ordered that the motion of the defendant, Jesse Smollett, to stay his sentence of incarceration and to grant him a bond pending the disposition of his appeal or until further order of the court is granted. And the defendant shall be released from the custody of the Cook County Sheriff upon the posting of a personal recognizance bond in paren I bond in the amount of $150,000. So that was the salient point for them. The crux of the whole thing is that his period of incarceration is so short that he would have been released before this was done. And that creates um, a moot point. Even if he wins appeal, you can't undo the time he spent in custody. With violent offenses, with those in custody much longer, you generally see them stay in custody pending appeal. But with somebody who's been out of custody for the years leading up to this trial without incident and who has been um, convicted of nonviolent offenses, who doesn't have a violent criminal past, this is an appropriate response. A frustrating response, I know. I've seen social media too. But it is an appropriate response while this case is appealed. Because the double jeopardy issue is a real question for this appellate court to look at, this is a funny circumstance with the forfeiting of this $10,000 bond. And we need to evaluate if this appeal is likely to overturn the conviction of Jesse Smollett because he it because it violates double jeopardy or whether this appeal will ultimately fail the appeal will be denied and he will be ordered back into custody so let's talk a whole lot about double jeopardy right now but before we do we need to thank our sponsor manscaped a huge thank you to today's sponsor manscaped now, you might know Manscaped as the number one company for the down there hair care, but they also have an incredible hygiene routine that not only do the men in my household love, is it, do we call the 14-year-old a man now? I think we do. At least he smells amazing because of Manscaped and not like the boys that I grew up with in the 90s that smelled like that other body spray that still has its scent burned into my nostrils. This is actually a delightful scent that a mother can get behind. But they have a really easy hygiene routine with their new all-in-one hygiene skin and hair bundle designed to upgrade the everyday man's shower routine from head to toe. So you can turn your man's shower into the shower of his dreams with the new Ultra Premium Collection. This comes with cologne-infused ultra-premium body wash that is moisturizing and smells yummy, two-in-one shampoo for hair care, and it has an amazing aluminum-free deodorant and a Manscaped hydrating body moisture spray. And then you can use the lip balm for the face. And if you really want to get feisty and keep everything looking nice, the Lawnmower 4.0 is what you need for all of the hair care removal needs. It's also waterproof, so it can be a part of your shower routine. This bundle will change his life and yours too, because it's going to smell amazing. If you want to give it all a try, 20% off and free shipping with code LAWNERD at manscaped.com. That's right. 20% off and free shipping with code LAWNERD at manscaped.com. Let's get the man of your life nice and clean with the new Manscaped shower routine. Thank you for sponsoring this episode. When talking about double jeopardy, 
we first need to talk about the Constitution. I'll take constitutional amendments for 500, Alex. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> couldn't help myself. Under the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, you cannot be prosecuted twice for substantially the same offense. The word offense matters deeply in this context. What the Fifth Amendment says is, quote, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. That's not the entirety of the Fifth Amendment. I do have a video breaking down the Constitution. Soft-spoken. If you want to go watch me read the entire Constitution, soft-spoken. It's uh, on my second YouTube channel. I'll link it down below. But that is the operative part of the Fifth Amendment for what we're talking about here, the Double Jeopardy Clause. The Double Jeopardy Clause protects against three types of abuses. I feel like I'm in law school. I hope you do too. This is the law school analysis. And it took me a while to remember and go back to the beginning with this analysis because I got very caught on what that bond is. Is that bond a punishment? Is that bond not a punishment? How's the court going to see it? I needed to back, it's like, girl, back up to the beginning of this analysis, which I was very good at at law school. Um, but sometimes we jump ahead as we get older. It protects against three types of abuses. A second prosecution of the same offense after acquittal. Like once you are acquitted, you cannot be tried for the same offense again. If you've seen the movie Double Jeopardy, you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure this came up in How to Get Away with Murder as well. A second prosecution for the same offense after a conviction. You can't prosecute someone after they've been convicted. And multiple punishments for the same offense. It's that third prong that Smollett's team is going to be arguing that he has already been punished by the $10,000 bail bond forfeiture and therefore he cannot be prosecuted again. There's a lot to come here, but what we also need to talk about is when does Jeopardy attach? When does the buzzer start? What is Jeopardy? It doesn't attach the, at the time that a police report is made. It doesn't attach at the time that a filing is made. It happens all the time that cases get filed and then dismissed and then filed again later. So it's not then. The case law that I have looked at, not just the federal case law, because it's pretty black letter law at this point, but also the case law in Illinois indicates that they consider Jeopardy attaches it several critical points of a prosecution. And those points are when a jury is impaneled and sworn. When a jury is sworn. So if a jury's sworn and then they're dismissed and then you bring in another jury, Jeopardy has attached. And if you don't do that right, <laughs> stuff can get wonky. And then you end up with, uh, you know, you end up with Supreme Court cases being like, what you can't do is swear a jury, release them, and then bring in another jury days later if you don't do it properly and actually mistry the case so that Jeopardy uh, doesn't attach and it can be retried. If a bench trial is what's happening and there are bench trials where you just, the attorneys go before a judge, then Jeopardy attaches when the first witness is sworn and evidence and testimony start being taken. And if there is a guilty plea, it's when the plea is accepted by the court. So if you have a defendant in court saying, yes, your honor, I want to change my plea, I plead guilty, and the plea hasn't been taken yet, and then they change their mind, they're not 
unable to be prosecuted. Jeopardy hasn't attached yet until the plea is accepted and finalized by the court. So now you should be going, huh? In this case, though, Emily, a jury wasn't impaneled and sworn on the first indictment, correct? It was just days later that it went into court on March 26th and was dismissed. And you're like, well, there wasn't a bench trial. Accurate. But also, you read me the entire March 26th transcript and he didn't plead guilty. Correct. And this is where the crux of the issue lies. Did Jeopardy attach to the first prosecution when the case was no prost or not prosecuted? I could just say non prost, <laughs> not prosecuted. Did Jeopardy attach then? Smollett's defense has an uphill battle proving that Jeopardy attached. They keep jumping the gun in their argument saying, but he's being punished twice. But they're not proving in their arguments that the $10,000 forfeiture was a punishment. Can you be legally punished if you are not convicted? Can an innocent person or a person presumed innocent be punished by a fine when the fine is not imposed by the court and it's an agreement between the parties? Is that truly the definition of being punished twice? So in looking at the transcript of what happened when this came before the trial court and was argued before the trial court the first time, because it was argued again at sentencing. The first time the defense made that motion was on February 24th, 2020. It was denied June 12th, 2020. They brought it again after trial, and it was denied again after trial. And they are bringing it again on their appeal now, saying, no, Jeopardy has attached. He will be punished twice because that $10,000 fine was a punishment. I found it very helpful to go back through what the defense argued back at the June 2020 hearing, what the prosecution argued, and most instructively, what the court determined. Here are the facts that I was unaware of in this case before reading through that entire transcript. First, the original prosecution only was born out of Statements to police officers made the date of the incident on January 29th. The second prosecution was based on statements made to the police officers on February 14th, 2019. Different officers, different false reports. So the 16 count indictment that was dismissed is different offenses. Each instant of lying to the police is a separate offense. And so there is a very good argument that you're not even at risk for jeopardy, attach or not attach, you're not even at risk for jeopardy because these are separate offenses. The defense argument to that will be, but the offenses were known of at the time you filed the first indictment on 16 counts. And so because the first indictment was filed and those offenses were known about, then you can't just file, you can't hold them and file them later. I don't know if in this context that will be persuasive. In a lot of contexts, that is persuasive. If you have a case where the police um, pull over a car 
hypothetically pull over a car and they find um, an unregistered gun. The person driving the car is a felon. They don't have a driver's license. The car is stolen and there's narcotics in it. All of those things. And they only charge the person with driving without a license. They don't charge the stolen car. They don't charge the weapon. They don't charge the drugs. They can't go back later because they knew of all those things at the time and you need to file what you are aware of. However, if they're not aware that the car is stolen at the time because something happened when they ran the VIN number, then you have an opportunity perhaps to prosecute it down the road. But here there is a clear argument that when he was indicted, on March 7th, 2019, that they knew of what had happened on February 14th, 2019, and they knew of those statements to police. So first, I think there's a good argument that this is not being punished twice for the same offense because he was prosecuted for two separate offenses. The second prong of that then is, did Jeopardy attach? This is not an impaneled jury. This is not a guilty plea, and this is not a bench trial. So there's an argument that Jeopardy never even attached. So therefore, the analysis doesn't need to go any further than that. Then there's the argument that this is is not a pretrial diversion because there is a very specific and formal process within Cook County for pretrial diversion, which is consistent with my experience at the LA DA's office. There was a formal process through the office if somebody was going to do diversion before the case formally went through court. But there was a process that what also went through the courts before it was like formally filed. So whether this was really a pretrial diversion or not is very much at issue because this case did not follow the very clear and laid out procedure for pretrial diversion within their county, which is something I did not realize how formal of a process it is. So when you see, you know, Kim Fox, the state's attorney talking about the fact that this was a diversion, there is a very formal process for diversion that the court laid out on the record at the um, hearing in June. So looking at the process and looking at that March 26 transcript, you're like, wait a second, these are not the same. This is not the supervision of a court for a year and completing certain conditions and then changing a plea before it's dismissed. This is none of that. And then there's the argument that it can't be punishment because he's still presumed innocent because he never did change his plea. So that the forfeiture of the bond didn't cause jeopardy to attach because it was a voluntary forfeiture and not in fact a punishment. The court said some very interesting things in their ruling. And the court gave a lengthy um, ruling from the bench. This is really common in state court. In federal court, you will see written out rulings from the judges. In state court, you will often see these rulings from the bench where the court is just orally giving their ruling. And that's what we saw this same judge do when they sentenced uh, Jesse. You saw a very long statement about how they felt about this case and what they thought about how Jesse behaved and that he was a charlatan pretending to be a victim. The court notes specifically that the second indictment arises out of the same basic incident, but that it talks about different events and different facts entirely. So the particulars of the second prosecution are dramatically different. That second indictment is 
really a second and separate offense. So he's not being punished for the same offenses twice. And then the judge said that the question comes, was there punishment enough for double jeopardy to attach? And the punishment that is being urged is the voluntary service in the community and the agreement to forfeit the bond in the city of Chicago. The court states that it wasn't treated as deferred prosecution, that the agreement to dismiss doesn't mean jeopardy attaches because the null pros or the non-prosecution is a very specific type of a dismissal that generally allows for the case to be refiled and proceed later. So that that procedure within Chicago is a procedure that is common and regular and that jeopardy does not attach to that. The court states that you can't have criminal penalty on the innocent, the presumed innocent, or the unadjudicated. It can only happen if someone is found guilty. Therefore, the forfeiture is not a fine. Therefore, Smollett's not being punished twice and jeopardy didn't attach. And so the motion to dismiss was denied. The court's ruling in that and their their walkthrough of all of these facts, some of which I was unaware of, is sound. So it's not that, you know, there were issues with the way that Kim Fox treated this case or that there was a conflict or potentially an ethical conflict. Those are issues that the prosecutor's office, the investigation are going to have to deal with and are dealing with. But it doesn't affect the Jeopardy analysis here. The Jeopardy analysis is really, did Jeopardy attach and is someone being punished twice for the same offense? And when you look at other Supreme Court rulings with regard to somebody being um, somebody being arrested on like a gun charge, and then they are prosecuted at the state level, but then perhaps prosecuted on the federal level. Those are considered different offenses and separate and distinct offenses. So you can, in some circumstances, be prosecuted twice out of the same event or the same series of events in separate offenses. And that's the analysis I think that the court is going to find helpful here. Even though the subsequent statements to police are born out of the same hoax hate crime, the charges are not for the same statements that were previously dismissed. They are for subsequent statements on a different date to different officers. And I think that will be very instructive to the court. I think the argument that this was no prost is a very good argument. I think the argument that Jeopardy never attached is a very good argument. And I don't think that the trial court got it wrong. And I will be very interested to see what the appellate court did or does in this case. And I'm not, we're not letting this go. Whenever the appellate court rules, I will be there. We will have another episode of The Emily Show to cover what the appellate court says. And if you are wondering, but Emily, what happened in the Cosby case? A, I will link below my episodes breaking down that case, but I do want to quickly tell you how these are distinguishable. With the Cosby case, in sum, he was prosecuted after he had given a deposition in which he um, testified under oath about things that had happened regarding an assault of an individual. At the time, he had been told that he would not be prosecuted. And because there was no pending prosecution, he could not assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and testified at that deposition. 
Later, a new prosecutor elected, decided to take up this prosecution and used that testimony against him in the prosecution of his case. And the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania overturned the conviction, released him from custody, and then denied to review it again. So this is done, done. The prosecution asked the court to review it again, and they said, no dice, friends. I'm going to read you the ruling from the... um, well, not the entire ruling. Emily, it's a 79-page ruling. Yes, it is. I'm going to give you the the final, final countdown, if you will, the final paragraph of that ruling, and then talk about why that case is different, but also why the Cosby case is instructive in the court's analysis, even though they are different jurisdictions. Remember, Cosby is Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. What the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania does isn't binding in any way to what the courts in Illinois do. But it's interesting to look at the analysis here. So the court said, however, the discretion vested in our Commonwealth's prosecutors, however vast, which it is, does not mean that its exercise is free of the constraints of due process. When an unconditional charging decision is made publicly and with the intent to induce action and reliance by the defendant, and when the defendant does so to his detriment, then it says imperin, and in some instances upon the advice of counsel, and paren, denying the defendant the benefit of that decision is an affront to fundamental fairness, particularly when it results in a criminal prosecution that was foregone for more than a decade. No mere changing of the guard strips that circumstance of its inequity. A contrary result would be patently untenable. It would violate long-cherished principles of fundamental fairness. It would be antithetical to and corrosive of the integrity and functionality of the criminal justice system that we strive to maintain. For those reasons, Cosby's convictions and judgment of sentence are vacated and he is discharged. When they talk about defendant does so to his detriment, the court in the Smollett case will have to look at the reliance to his detriment. Again, the Cosby case, it was over a decade before they re-prosecuted him, not the matter of mere months. In this case, did Smollett really rely to his detriment? He waived a $10,000 bond or forfeited it that's now being applied to his restitution after sentence. Cosby testified under oath against his Fifth Amendment right because there was no criminal prosecution coming. That is a much larger and more significant constitutional detriment than any detriment that can be argued by Smollett's attorneys. So I think it's distinguishable because the Fifth Amendment rights in the Cosby case fly in the face of fundamental fairness, where this pretrial um, dismissal really said, we're choosing not to prosecute but it wasn't a, we're never going to prosecute. So the appellate court in Illinois is going to really have to decide what no pros means. And there is case law that was cited in the original argument of this showing that no process is very kind of well-settled law that it doesn't attach, um, it doesn't attach your jeopardy rights. It doesn't attach the fifth amendment, but does voluntarily forfeiting a bail bond change the nature of that discussion. I 
see where the trial court is coming from saying, this is someone who never pled guilty. So they're non-adjudicated. So it can't be a criminal punishment or fine because they can't be criminally punished because they're not convicted of anything. I think that Smollett could end up back in custody. I think it's going to take some time to get there. This appeal is going to take some time, but I see the logic behind the double jeopardy argument saying we are not at the stage of a proceeding where jeopardy attached. The forfeiture, the voluntary forfeiture of a bail bond does not change that proceeding. And therefore, he could be re-prosecuted. And even if he is not being prosecuted for the same offenses. Now, whether that breach of an agreement, that understanding between a prosecutor and a defendant was clear enough that he was never going to be prosecuted again. I don't know if the appellate court's going to find that there. That's what the defense is going to argue, that this was an agreement. Jesse upheld his end of this agreement. The prosecutor's office has to be made to uphold their end of the agreement. And I understand that argument, but this agreement was so different than other agreements in that county. It didn't go through the formal procedures. Could it be reasonably relied on by Smollett and his team that he would never be prosecuted again? I don't think so. I don't think Jeopardy attached. I think it's their best argument on appeal, but I don't think Jeopardy attached here. And for that reason, I think this appeal will be denied. Smollett's conviction can stand and he will then have to serve his time in custody. The appellate court could do something completely different, but that's how I'm seeing this analysis. Now watch the appellate court's like, no, we don't find Jeopardy attached, but you didn't have the authority to appoint a special prosecutor. And I'll throw my hands up in the air and be like, really? That's what you found to be the most instructive? I don't see it, but it can always happen. We never know. So what comes next? There will be formal motions on appeal. Hopefully this will actually get oral argument on appeal and we will be able to see that um, and see this continuing to be argued. But this motion on these same grounds, the grounds aren't going to change. This motion has been argued twice and denied twice. And what's really interesting to me is when it was denied back in June of 2020, it was not appealed at that time just food for thought. I can't wait to hear what you think of this case. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a honored. Raise a glass. I've got coffee, which maybe isn't super hydrating because caffeinated, but whatever. We're going to stay caffeinated and mind our business today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a honored. Let me know if this type of episode breaking down the law and the facts behind the headlines was helpful. I will see you in the next one. And with that, stay caffeinated. Mind your business. Thank you for being a honored. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your gas not be over $7 a gallon. May your family be well, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you again for being here, and I will see you in the next one. <music>